It's August 25, 2030. Wildfires are burning out of control throughout much of North America, Europe, Russia, and Asia. Many of the most heavily populated cities in these countries are blanketed with smoke from these fires, causing significant respiratory problems with the very young, the elderly, and those with asthma and other lung problems. This is the hottest year yet in recorded history, which has led to a record number of deaths in the Northern Hemisphere. In the United States, race riots have led to order breaking down in many of the major cities. The president, an open white nationalist, was elected on a strict law and order platform. He wasn't elected by the popular vote, but as has happened so many times recently, a closely divided electorate left the final choice to the Electoral College. As a study by the University of Texas showed way back in 2019, the Electoral College is skewed heavily toward the Republicans in close elections. Claiming the government has failed to restore law and order, local militias have taken to the streets in order to take back the streets. But this has just escalated the riots. The divided Congress can't pass laws on climate change, and carbon is continuing to be pumped into the atmosphere in ever-increasing rates. Climate scientists once predicted dire changes in global warming if carbon reduction targets were not met. Now they predict catastrophic ecosystem collapses across the globe, even if we begin reducing carbon emissions immediately. Today, Jedanzia is speaking, a young leader who has recently gained a huge national following with his message of unity that is connected deeply with people from all across America and the world. Throughout the world, eyes are turned to TV, computer, and cell phone screens as he addresses the people tonight. You do me great honor by giving me your precious time to listen to my simple words. My heart has saddened immensely this year as I have watched the violence pour into the streets. Brothers and sisters, is this who we've become? Is this who we want to be? Yesterday, watching the news, I heard a white nationalist call a black protester the N-word. Then, I heard a protester calling a militia member a racist bigot using an epithet I won't repeat. I ask again, is this who we want to be? Non-acceptance begets fear. Fear begets hate. Hate begets division and violence. And anger spreads like a cancer, entering every heart and eating who we are as a people from within. We must find another way. The human heart does not have enough room for both hate and compassion. We must choose which one we will feed. We must learn to treat those with whom we disagree with compassion. If you wage war with compassion, you will win. If you protect yourself with compassion, you will be impervious. Those who are good, I treat as good. Those who are not good, I also treat as good. In doing so, I gain in goodness. Kindness is the strongest weapon you possess. Give birth to it and nourish it. Produce it, but don't possess it. Give it away without expectation. This is called the mysterious virtue. My friends, you are a vessel. Fill yourself with fear and hate and your vessel is easily shattered. Empty it with peace and calmness and it is an empty vessel which no longer holds anxiety. When you fear others, you will withdraw into yourself and push them even further away. When you feel compassion for those with whom you disagree, you open yourself and become fearless. When you are open to others, you speak to them in a language they can understand. 
For far too long, we have been speaking to others and asking them to hate us. We need to ask them to understand our humanity. But we can only ask this question when we see their humanity. But how can we do this? There is a lie being perpetrated among us. Sometimes when a lie is repeated often enough, people believe it to be true. We must stop believing this lie. It tells us that when we hate, we are strong. This is false. Young children can be trained to hate those who are not like them with little effort. This takes no strength of character. We can be our own best friends or our own worst foes. Learning to have compassion for those who are not like you takes strength. Men and women of inner strength who learn to care for those who disagree with them find serenity. My friends, when you process the world through filters of anxiety, fear, and hate, you will in turn spread these in ever-increasing measure in your world. Learn rather the language of love. This is a language that is learned through strength of character. It is not easy to learn this language when we see people doing things that make us afraid, but this is what those of strong character do. When we do this, when we develop this character, when we learn to hear others through the language of compassion, when we learn to speak to our brothers and sisters in this language, this is when we will change the world. Welcome to Nearest Fiddle, Episode 7, The First Axis. Writing this episode is a real treat for me. First, I get to stop by areas of history that aren't in the Western historical canon. And it might sound like a broken record, but there's so much great history out there that we aren't going to be able to touch on in this series. I hope this podcast whets your appetite for history enough to get you to look into some of these other cultures. Second, I get to visit some of my favorite historical figures. This episode is about what has become known as the Axial Age. With the exception of Islam, all the major religions that people follow today came about in the Axial Age, that period roughly between the 8th century BC and the time of Jesus. We covered the Jews last episode, and we'll be covering Jesus and Christianity in later episodes. So why cover these thinkers? Buddhism definitely has a presence in our society, but its presence is small enough that it doesn't resemble anything close to a prime driver in our society. We'll also be covering Taoism and Hinduism. I'd be willing to bet that few of our listeners have a deep knowledge of either of these religions. I thought we were following history's arrows that lead us to the Industrial Revolution. Yes, we are. But the larger goal is to understand how we got to the second decade of the 21st century, facing down severe global climate change, and having failed to make any meaningful progress, reducing total carbon emissions, or preventing the disastrous ecosystem collapses that we know are coming. Once we understand why we are here, it will only make sense to understand where we go from here. We'll never make the changes that need to be made using the kind of thinking that got us to where we are. What kind of thinking, then, will get us to where we need to go? We're not there yet. But it might be good to understand some of the world's great thought systems just a bit when we get toward the end of this podcast. So my fictional Jadantia's philosophy is a bit of a mashup from Lao Tzu, Taoism, the Bhagavad Gita, Hinduism, Jesus, and the Buddha. The Buddha's exact words might be a little hard to pin down exactly because we don't have anything that he wrote down, 
The earliest Buddhist scriptures were written down hundreds of years after his death. If you look at different Buddhist sects today, there can be great disparities between their teachings. Still, there's little dispute about the core of Buddha's teachings, his Four Noble Truths and his Eightfold Path. I can't say that I'm a fan of his First Noble Truth, that life is suffering. To me, this overstates the point significantly. There's so much love, joy, and happiness in life that I can't totally buy into Buddha's First Noble Truth. Yet there is certainly a lot of suffering in life, and I can't disagree much from where he goes from there. His second noble truth is that suffering comes from desire. According to the Buddha, we can overcome our suffering when we master our desires. The final noble truth is that the way to overcome our suffering is by following the Eightfold Path. His Eightfold Path tells us to practice. Right understanding, this is a crucial step. Our desires, wants, prejudices, fears, etc. cloud our thinking and lead us to see things as we want them to be. We have to overcome these impediments to true understanding if we're going to understand reality. You've heard me say something similar in regard to understanding history. If we don't understand and neutralize our prejudices and emotions when we study history, our understanding of history will be one large exercise in confirmation bias, and we'll never understand the history that really happened. Next, right intent. This is the state of mind needed in order to bear the hardships of following the Eightfold Path. Right speech. This includes no lying, rudeness, and not intentionally hurting others. Right conduct. This is refraining from killings, stealing, and sexual misconduct. Right livelihood gaining one's livelihood from benefiting others. Right effort, preventing unwholesome states and keeping a good attitude. This is a gross oversimplification for the sake of brevity, and many books have been written on this. Right mindfulness, if you've not joined the mindfulness movement, read any web page on mindfulness, then practice being in the movement. You'll get the main idea. Finally, right concentration. Once you've uncluttered your mind, by practicing the other steps in the Eightfold Path. You can then achieve the concentration to achieve whatever is desired. Spend some time meditating, and you'll begin to understand this one. My all-too-brief pass through Buddhism has been a little like summarizing the Bible in a minute or two. My purpose in glancing at Buddhism, as with Taoism and Hinduism, is to hopefully whet your appetite to read some of this wisdom literature. I don't want to turn you into a Buddhist or a Taoist. What I want to do is get to see how much, if any, of this wisdom might fit into your life. Here's a Buddhist trick I've used many times. Pain is caused by desire. I don't know that I'd make this the universal that Buddhists do, but there's a lot of truth to it. Imagine you're stung by a bee. You have a strong reaction to it. The sting site begins to swell and it hurts. A lot. The pain commands your attention and you seriously want it to stop. Then you remember the Buddhist thing. You look at the sting site and notice its particulars. You become mindful. You start being in the present and in your surroundings and noticing other sights and sounds around you. The sting's no longer demanding all your attention. You stop wanting it to go away and are simply present with it. Now it's there just as it was before, but you no longer experience the overwhelming hurt you did before. The first time I tried this, I was in significant pain. I was amazed at how well it works, and I've used it several times since then. Our attention so many times is drawn to the most pressing sensory or emotional input. 
When this is physically or emotionally painful input, we want it to stop. The bee sting to stop hurting, the crisis to resolve. The more pain, the more we want it to stop. The more we want it, the more of our attention is drawn to the issue. The more we pay attention, the more it hurts. And it goes on in a vicious cycle. That is, I think the Buddhists would say, we allow circumstances to control our minds. What Buddhism tells us to do is to retake control of our mind, to decide for ourselves what is most worthy of our awareness. When we accept the negative physical or emotional input for what it is and don't desire that it be something else, we free our mind to concentrate on problem solving and are much better able to resolve the issue than when we were in a negative spiral of pain, attention, and desire. By the way, this works great for those who struggle with anxiety issues. Not much is known about the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu. It's even possible that he's mythical. Oral tradition has it that he was a contemporary of Confucius during the Warring States period in Chinese history. This was a period between dynasties about 475 and 200 BC when various smaller states rose up and vied for power. Lao Tzu, reportedly, was a minor government official in one of these states when he had enough of the corruption inside the court. In some tellings, he was fed up. He retired and was leaving the city to go live in the mountains. A guard at the gate of the city noticed him as he was leaving and begged him to write his wisdom down before he left. His writings are the book that has come down to us as the Tao Te Ching. This is a book about the Tao, so what is the Tao? The Tao that can be spoken is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the origin of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of the myriad things. Thus, constantly without desire, one observes its essence. Constantly with desire, one observes its manifestations. Okay, so what's all this about? We can't name the Tao? We can't even speak about it? And what's the stuff about mysteries and observing without desire? Lao Tzu packs a lot into the first chapter of the Tao. You can go online and get lots of interpretations regarding what the Tao is. Here's my take on this first chapter. There's an essence to our universe. I don't care. You can think of it as the sum total of all dynamic systems that combine to make up our biology, ecosystems, social systems, physical systems, solar system, and the way they all interact to make up the world that we perceive. Or you can think of it as a mystical force that directs the movements and interactions of everything. Either way, this essence is the Tao. The reason we can't name it is because it's too complex for us to understand completely. But there it is. And it was the origin of the heavens and the earth. The universe and everything we know are guided by the unfathomable complexities of the interplay of these dynamic systems, even if we can't completely name it. But name it we do because we're human, and that's how we understand. There's a force that pulls us downward toward the center of the earth. We call it gravity. And naming it gravity helps us understand the phenomenon of being held to the surface of the earth. Scientists will tell you that it has something to do with the bending of space and time, or rather, an amalgam of the two called space-time. But they can't tell you why it bends in the presence of massive objects. Once Newton named gravity, it allowed us to understand the concept, and scientists have been able to study the phenomenon in great detail. Yet we understand it imperfectly, and so it is with all things and phenomena that we put names to. 
we can put all these names or concepts together and form an understanding of the whole. But how we observe them makes all the difference. When we desire a particular outcome, it colors our perception of it and our understanding of it is skewed by our confirmation bias, in which we see what we want to see. We see the manifestation that we see and understand, but this isn't the true Tao. When we're able to observe something truly without any desire of one outcome or another, we're able to see it in its true essence and not what we're hoping to see. We are then much closer to the Tao. The world we know, then, is largely the world we want to see, not the world or the Tao as it really is. This is because we're human and have our desires and want to see things a certain way. Yet we strive to overcome this part of our nature, to perceive without the preconceptions or desires of a certain outcome. Our biased perceptions, then, become merged with a more neutral state of mind, and we begin to see things more objectively. It's here that we begin to understand the mysteries, that is, to be amazed at things the way they really are, not as we've always understood them to be. Here I'm going on and on, yet I'm summarizing this in as few words as I can. We could write all day about the first few lines of the Tao Te Ching, and so it is all the way through the book. It's an amazing book in that sense. It won't take you long to read through, but the good part about the Tao Te Ching is you can find a chapter or passage you like and just keep that mind over the next week or so. Just bring it to mind now and then and you'll see how it applies in so many areas of your life that you wouldn't have expected. The Tao Te Ching is a widely ranging philosophy that covers many topics, but it has some central and repetitive themes. Here are a few. The first is Wu Wei. This is most often translated as inaction, but I think a better translation might be effortless action. Here are a few excerpts. The way of heaven is to win easily without struggle, to respond well without words, to naturally come without special invitation, to plan well without anxiety. Heaven's net is vast. It is loose, yet nothing slips through. The great way is easy, yet people prefer bypaths. Win the empire by not being meddlesome. The gentle and soft overcomes the hard and aggressive. No one to stop, and you will meet with no danger. Then you can endure. Do without doing. Get involved without manipulating. Taste without tasting. Make the great small, the many few. Respond to anger with virtue. Deal with difficulties while they are still easy. Handle the great while it is small. The best warrior is never aggressive. The best fighter is never angry. The best tactician does not engage the enemy. The best utilizer of people's talents places himself below them. This is called the virtue of non-contention. It is called the ability to engage people's talents. There is no greater danger than underestimating your opponent. If I underestimate my opponent... I will lose that which is most dear. Therefore, when opponents clash, the one who is sorry about it will be the winner. The sage abides in the condition of Wu Wei and carries out the wordless teaching. Lao Tzu on Desire The nameless uncarved block is but freedom from desire. And if I cease to desire and remain still, the empire will be at peace of its own accord. 
There is no greater crime than having too many desires. There is no disaster greater than not being content. There is no misfortune greater than being covetous. Therefore be content. One will always have enough. Loss is not as bad as wanting more. Therefore, the sufficiency that comes from knowing what is enough is an eternal sufficiency. Too much store is sure to end in immense loss. No contentment, and you will suffer no disgrace. To hold until full is not as good as stopping. An over-sharpened sword cannot last long. A room filled with gold and jewels cannot be protected. Boasting of wealth and virtue brings your demise. After finishing the work, withdraw. This is the way of heaven. The granaries are empty, yet there are those dressed in fineries with swords at their side filled with food and drink, and possessed of too much wealth. This is known as taking the lead in robbery. It is far indeed from the Tao. Therefore, the sage produces without possessing, acts without expectations, and accomplishes without abiding in accomplishments. This is why they never leave him. Life is a series of natural, spontaneous changes. Don't resist them. That only creates sorrow. Let reality be reality. Let things flow naturally forward in whatever way they like. In a previous life, I was a lawyer. Every lawyer has times when a client is offered a settlement that has to be accepted. Sometimes the facts and law turn out not to be on a client's side, and the best likely outcome of the case is worse than a settlement that's offered. Yet the client's estimation of the value of their case can sometimes be inflated. When this happens, it can be very tough for a client to accept such a settlement. When I was a young lawyer, there were times I would have long, painful discussions with my client when this would happen. I'd explain why the law wasn't in their favor. The client would complain about how unfair the other side was. I'd explain in great detail how the facts weren't on our side. The client would go on and on about how there would be no way to live with this result. The client would ultimately accept the offer and leave angry, convinced of the injustice of the legal system and the perfidy of the other side. There's no way I would do this in my later years of practicing law. After I was satisfied the client understood the facts and law, I simply listened to my client. The client's processing usually seemed to follow something close to an abbreviation of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five steps of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. If you just allow a client to follow their own process, they'll work it out and will ultimately accept the offer. In doing this, not only did I save myself a lot of indigestion, but more importantly, I had a client who left accepting the result of the case and not angry at the world. This is just one example of Wu Wei. If you watch in your life, you'll start to see it over and over again. On judgment, good speech lacks fault-finding. On unity, that is, all things are one. It is on disaster that good fortune perches. It is beneath good fortune that disaster crouches. When the world knows beauty is beauty, ugliness arises. When it knows good is good, evil arises. Thus, being and non-being produce each other. What's the difference between yes and no? What's the difference between beautiful and light? Mystery is what happiness rests upon. Happiness is what misery lurks beneath. 
When we suffer loss, we all feel sadness. But for Lao Tzu, all things contain their opposite. For him, it's the flip side of happiness. This idea that life is one runs throughout Eastern philosophy. I read a scholar once who traced the concept back to Lao Tzu. He was evidently the originator of the idea. On Compassion, Generosity, and Humility I have three things I cherish. The first is compassion. The second is frugality. The third is not daring to put myself ahead of everybody. Having compassion, I can be brave. Having frugality, I can be generous. Not daring to put myself ahead of everybody, I can take the time to perfect my abilities. Those who are good, I treat as good. Those who are not good, I also treat as good. In doing so, I gain goodness. Simplicity, patience, compassion. These three are your greatest treasures. Supreme good is like water. Water greatly benefits from all things without conflict. It flows through places that people loathe. Thereby, it is close to the Tao. On how to perceive. There's nothing better than to know that you don't know. Not knowing, yet thinking you know. This is sickness. The superior student listens to the Tao and follows it closely. The average student listens to the Tao and follows some and some not. The lesser student listens to the Tao and laughs out loud. One who knows does not speak. One who speaks does not know. For dwelling, the earth is good. For the mind, depth is good. The five colors blind our eyes. The five tones deafen our ears. The five flavors confuse our taste. Possessing rare treasures brings about harmful behavior. Therefore, the sage regards his center and not his eyes. He lets go of that and chooses this. There's much more to the Tao Te Ching, but I'll end with this one. Therefore, the myriad creatures all revere the Tao and honor virtue. Yet the Tao is revered and virtue honored not because this is decreed by any authority, but because it is natural for them to be treated so. Thus, the Tao gives them life and rears them. If I could summarize Lao Tzu's philosophy in five words, it would be, don't fight, find the harmony. As I write this in the summer of 2020, Black Lives Matter protests are spreading throughout the U.S. I turn on Fox to see what they are saying and hear about the outrages that are being perpetrated by protesters and what a disgrace the liberal mayors are who can't control the lawless anarchists. Then I listen to MSNBC and hear about the horrible, disgraceful things that the Republicans are doing. We complain to others in our tribe about how bad the other tribe is, but we don't take time to listen to their concerns. When I was younger, I worked in mediation and alternative dispute resolution. I found that when we sit down and talk to each other, we begin to hear what they are saying and gain compassion for those with whom we disagree. If we could somehow get people who are passionate about Black Lives Matter to sit down with those who are passionate about law and order, and to get them to seriously listen to each other. I'm sure Lao Tzu would tell us that we are much closer to the Tao. The Bhagavad Gita, or Song of God, was probably written somewhere around the 2nd century BC and is one of the most important Hindu texts. As the epic begins, we find our protagonist, the warrior prince Arjuna, as his troops are arrayed for battle against the Kauravas. He knows many of the Kauravas, against whom he is about to do battle, 
and is having second thoughts about whether he really wants to do all of the killing he brought all of his soldiers out here to do today. He's fortunate, however, to have the god Krishna as his charioteer. The vast majority of the Bhagavad Gita consists of Krishna explaining to Arjuna why he should give the order to attack. Though the ultimate reason, you'll be doing the right thing and therefore will help your soul be reborn to a higher level when you're reincarnated, may not resonate with most of us today, there's a great deal of wisdom in the 700 verse poem and it's well worth our attention. Here's a small sampling of Krishna's wisdom. The Bhagavad Gita is big on discipline and character. Here's some of Krishna's advice to Arjuna regarding discipline. An agent called pure has no attachment or individualism, is resolute and energetic, unchanged in failure and success. From anger comes confusion, from confusion memory lapses. From broken memory, understanding is lost. From loss of understanding, he is ruined. But a man of inner strength, whose senses experience objects without attraction and hatred, in self-control, finds serenity. In serenity, all his sorrows dissolve. His reasons become serene, his understanding sure. Without discipline, he has no understanding or inner power. Without inner power, he has no peace. And without peace, where is his joy? Armed with discipline, he, the sage, purifies and subdues the self, masters the senses, unites himself with the self of all creatures. Even when he acts, he is not defiled. Seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, eating, walking, sleeping, breathing. The disciplined man who knows reality should think, I do nothing at all. Perform actions, firm in discipline, relinking attachment, be impartial to failure and success. This equanimity is called discipline. On character. The three gates of hell are desire, anger, and greed. One must relinquish all three. Any man who acts with honor cannot go the wrong way. The man who has mastered himself is set apart by his disinterest toward comrades, allies, enemies, neutrals, nonpartisans, foes, friends, good men, evil men. The Bhagavad Gita is clear on the importance of attaining a peaceful, dispassionate frame of mind. It's when we give in to our passions that we make mistakes and lose our way. On dispassion. Knowledge is better than practice. Meditation is better than knowledge. Rejecting the fruits of action is better still. It brings peace. When these things, pleasure and pain, cannot torment a man, when suffering and joy are equal for him, and he has courage, he is fit for immortality. Self-reliant, impartial to suffering and joy, to clay, stone, or cold, the resolute man is the same to foe and to friend, to blame and praise. When the mind is tranquil, perfect joy comes to the man of discipline. His passion is calmed. He is without sin, being one with the infinite spirit. Without doubt, the mind is unsteady and hard to hold, but practice and dispassion can restrain it, Arjuna. Unequanimity. One who neither hates nor desires, beyond dualities, is easily freed from bondage. Delights from external objects are wombs of suffering. In their beginning is their end, and no wise man delights in them. The self is its own friend and its own worst foe. On compassion given in due time and place to a fit recipient who can give no advantage, 
charity is remembered as lucid. My true devotee does not feel hatred for any being, but is friendly and compassionate towards all without the thoughts of I and mine. The one who cooks food for only oneself eats poison. Mutually nourishing one another, we all attain real prosperity. Krishna's Advice on Desire When he gives up desires in his mind, is content with the self within himself, then he is said to be a man whose insight is sure. Ascribing all works to the divine, one acts with inner freedom. While contemplating on all objects of senses, one develops attachment to them. Attachment leads to desire, and from desire arises anger. When there is an increase in the mode of passion, the symptoms of great attachment, fruit of activity, intense endeavor, uncontrollable desire, and hankering develop. What should we be like then? Fearless purity, determination in the discipline of knowledge, charity, self-control, sacrifice, study of sacred lore, penance, honesty, nonviolence, truth, absence of anger, disengagement, peace, loyalty, compassion for creatures, lack of greed, gentleness, modesty, reliability, brilliance, patience, resolve, clarity, absence of envy and pride, these characterize a man born with divine traits. And finally, Krishna's advice to Arjuna, So sever the ignorant doubt in your heart with the sword of self-knowledge, Arjuna. Observe your discipline. Arise. These are just three examples of wisdom literature. Each one of them deserves to be examined in much greater depth. The teachings of the Buddha are most problematic. As we don't have any of his writings, we have to rely on what his followers wrote about what he said. The reason I found this problematic is there are so many different schools and traditions in Buddhism. Whatever school you read will have its own take on Buddhism. Often as you read this literature, you find that you get more and more into religion. The Buddha was a secular teacher who attempted to show his followers the way to personal enlightenment, not a religious prophet. I'm not attempting to get you to read religious literature in order to find yourself a belief system you can adopt. I'm trying to get you to read wisdom literature that will help you build your own framework of ethics and personal values. You already have your framework. We all do. Perhaps yours might go something like this. Let the other guy set the rules. If other people treat me nice, I'll be nice to them, and vice versa. You might have heard something in this podcast and say to yourself, that makes sense. Perhaps you may have liked Lao Tzu's aphorism, the five colors blind our eyes, the five tones deafen our ears, the five flavors confuse our taste. Possessing rare treasures brings about harmful behavior. Therefore, the sage regards his center and not his eyes. He lets go of that and chooses this. In thinking about this, you might think, Perhaps he's right. I shouldn't allow my motivations to come from what I experience, but from my personal values and beliefs. I'll start evaluating my priorities more from my beliefs than from my experiences or what other people are saying. This might lead to a deeper dive into one of these books, or into other wisdom literature. 
You might pick a teaching here or an aphorism there that resonates with you and add this to your framework. The clearer your moral framework, the deeper your sense of who you are, the clearer your path will be. We've wasted the most crucial years in preparing for a world that will be forever changed by global warming. Having a generation of people with a strong moral framework will be more important than ever in facing the coming decades. Buddhism, Taoism, Hinduism, whichever one appeals to you, pick something up and read deeper. Two of the three readings are obvious, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching and the Bhagavad Gita. As I mentioned, however, finding a Buddhist text to read is a little problematic. There's a Vietnamese Buddhist monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, that has written fairly extensively. His books tend to be fairly short and have become quite popular. This wouldn't be a bad place to start if you want to delve into Buddhism a little. Enjoy. See you next week.